You're listening to a sermon from St. John's Anglican in Cranbourne. To find out more about us, head to cranbourneanglican.org.au. We're going to be continuing our series on 1 Samuel, and so it would be a good idea to have that open before you this morning. It's page 219 in your pew Bibles, uh, because we didn't read the whole of the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. Otherwise, we would have had to read all of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10, which just might have taken a bit long. Uh, But we will be looking at all of it, so handy to have it before you. Well, let me pray for us as we turn to God's word. Uh, Heavenly Father, we uh, thank and praise you that you are a good and gracious God, a God who speaks to us, a God who is at work in history. And we pray that as we look at this particular part of your history, uh, you would open our eyes to who you are, your character. You would open our hearts uh, to your work and that you'd open our ears to listen and to obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, he was a scientist, and he was just about to go on holidays. And he was tired. He'd normally wash up after he'd finished his experiments, but he was in a bit of a rush to get to the door. Uh, He looked at the Petri dishes there, and thought, should I wash them? Should I leave them? It's one of those decisions, a small little decision. And yet, it was in fact the biggest decision that he would ever make in his life, a decision on which rested the lives of millions of people, perhaps even you. What did he decide? He left them. Well, a month later when he returned, he noticed something strange, a mould that appeared to be able to kill the germs in a dish. And so Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin. Sometimes it's the really small decisions, the decisions that seem insignificant that turn out to be the kind of decisions that change the world. To do the washing up or not. There's a little encouragement for you to leave the dishes tonight. You never know what's going to happen. Well, as we look at chapters 9 and 10 of 1 Samuel, our story begins with a series of seemingly insignificant events. It begins with uh, the insignificant event of some donkeys going loose. And it's a surprising turn of events. I mean, at the end of 1 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people have just asked for a king. Give us a king. We want a king like the nations. And so as you go into chapter 9, you would expect the action to move to the halls of power, to the plotting and intrigue. That's, That's how kings happen. But it doesn't. Instead, we get a story about lost donkeys. The story moves to Saul, the son of a wealthy man, but by no means the halls of power. He is from the tribe of Benjamin. It's the smallest tribe of the tribes of Israel. And his dad's donkeys have escaped, and he, together with a servant, have been sent out to try and find the donkeys. Verse 4. He passed through the hill country 
of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Sha'alim, but they were not there. Then he passed through the land of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they came to the land of Zaph, Saul said to the boy who was with him, let's turn back or my father will stop worrying about the donkeys and worry about us. Now, as Saul starts meandering through the land of Benjamin, you begin to think, why on earth is our story meandering in the same kind of way? What's going on here? Saul goes everywhere looking for the donkeys, and finally he's sick of it, he wants to give up. But it just so happens that they're now near a town where a certain prophet lives. And the servant says, there's a prophet here. Uh, Maybe he can help us find the lost donkeys. Uh, Well, Saul at first doesn't really want to go and see the prophet because he realizes he doesn't have anything to give him. But it just so happened that the servant had picked up a half shekel of silver before he went looking for the donkeys. And he was willing to give it to the prophet. So Saul says, okay, we will go and see the prophet. Now, as they come near the town, uh, some girls are coming out to draw water from the well. And so they ask them, uh, do you know where the prophet is? And they say, well, as it happens, it's a remarkable coincidence. He's just arrived at exactly the right time for you. And he's just ahead. And so Saul and his servant head towards the town. And who should be the very first person they meet? Samuel. Suddenly we discover it's Samuel who he's been brought before. And we discover that all these seemingly random events have in fact been orchestrated by God. Verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel. Tomorrow, about this time, Here we go. I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be ruler over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the land of the Philistines, for I have seen the suffering of my people because of their outcry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. Here it is who shall rule over my people. Now God has worked through wayward donkeys, through a servant's suggestion, through the very timing of a girl's walk to a well, to bring Samuel and Saul together. And the same kind of things keep on happening in chapter 10 as well. God confirms for Saul his decision to make him king by fulfilling a number of very specific events Samuel says are going to happen. So Samuel anoints Saul as Uh, the future king, and then he says to him, chapter 10, verse 1, Now this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you ruler over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzar. They will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has stopped worrying about them and is worrying about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there further and come to the oak of Tabor. 
three men are going up to God at Bethel and they'll meet you there, one carrying three kids, another carrying three loaves of bread and another carrying a skin of wine. Uh, They will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from them. If Saul's in any doubt at this point uh, about it, it's, it's got too, too specific, hasn't it? It's, it's got to be God. But even more, after that, you shall come to Gibeah Elohim at the place where the Philistine garrison is. There, as you come, down, come to the town, you will meet a band of prophets coming down from the shrine with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre playing in front of them. They'll be in a prophetic frenzy. Then the spirit of the Lord will possess you and you will be in a prophetic frenzy among, along with them and you'll be turned into a new man. It is an extraordinarily specific list of things that Samuel says is going to happen. He describes his, his, the day that is before him and all the signs are fulfilled. Now, you think about all the little decisions that God has had to have a hand in in order to orchestrate all of that. God needs to uh, get the two men to decide to look for Saul near Rachel's tomb. Uh, At the same time, three men are thinking about what they're going to take for a journey. Shall I take one loaf of bread? Actually, there's two more loaves of bread here, and you never know when two more loaves can come in handy. I don't know why I'm bringing them, but I'm just going to pick them up anyway. And Joseph, put down that extra goat. We don't need four, we only need three. Come on. And off they go to the Oak of Tabor. Again and again, God is in the little decisions. God is in the details. And none of the people that are actually part of those chain of events had any idea that they were part of God's grand story to save the world. You know, God moves even in the least important details of your life too. Uh, You've got no idea the ways in which God has used your presence, your words, your prayers, uh, your circumstances for his great salvation plan. Uh, We tend to pray to God about the big decisions, uh, you know, where we live, who we're going to marry, Uh, what job we're going to do. And these are important decisions. And it's good to see God in those, but God can and does even use the mundane details of our lives for glorious and good purposes. God is sovereign over it all. It's no mistake that you live where you live, that you work where you work, or that you're here this morning. Uh, One of our members here this morning is Ken Townsley. Uh, He's a Christian because many, many years ago, a manager at his workplace assigned a Christian the desk next to his. Uh, And that manager, when he did that, had no idea how fundamentally that would alter Ken's life as that Christian witnessed to him and brought him to faith. I wonder if you can look back into your life and think of some seemingly incidental occurrence that also brought you here sitting at this point, this morning. The way in which God has worked in your life through the small details of someone else. See, God is busy ennobling our lives. 
giving it meaning and glory. And it may not even be a meaning and glory that we really see and understand in the here and now. It may not be until we're on that last day. And God shows us the wonderful threads of the glorious tapestry that he wove even through the little things of your life. If you love God and you're seeking to serve him, you can actually be confident that he is using you to bless others as part of his eternal plan. He's, he's using even the details of your life. Romans 11.33 says... Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. We, we may not know what he's doing. We often don't. For from him and through him and to him are all things, all the big things of your life, all the small things of your life, all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So as we look at this little story here, God is working even in the small things of these people's lives to bring him glory. God is at work bringing Saul to Samuel. But what's the point? Why does the narrative pause for an entire chapter of donkeys and another half chapter of these seemingly random events that are not random, why does, the, why does it pause for such a long time in the book on this? What's the point? Well, the point is, the point that the narrative is trying to ram home to us is that Saul is God's choice. None of this is by accident. Saul doesn't become a, the king by accident. It is God's choice. Now, this has puzzled me. It's always puzzled me why God chose Saul. Because if you look forward into the rest of the story, although Saul reigns for 42 years, he's actually given a very small amount of time in 1 Samuel as the focus of the action. And almost from the very beginning, as we'll see next week, it goes wrong. But it's God's choice. Uh, it's almost as though the kingship has got off to a false start. Uh, but, and so if it's God's choice, why is it that it seems to be so wrong? Well, in 1 Samuel 8, the people asked for a king. But they didn't just ask for any kind of king. They asked for a king like the other nations. Well, I wonder what you look for in a leader. Uh, as we come to this passage, as we look at Saul here, as we think about what a king like the other nations might be, we've actually got a whole lot of science on what the secular world looks for in a leader. And a lot of it is actually skin deep. Uh, what does the world look for in a leader? Its height, its wealth, and its looks. So height's really important. Studies have shown that uh, you are 27% more likely to be a leader if you are six foot two <laughs> as opposed to someone who's average height, five foot ten. Uh, I'm, I'm a lot less confident now that I'm the right man because I am six foot two and I'm wondering whether it's just that. 
Wealth is also a factor. If you are the child of wealthy parents, you are more likely to be in leadership. But interestingly, you are less likely to be good at it. Uh, privilege often brings a lack of compassion, and it turns out compassion is a really important characteristic of a good leader. If you want to be the President of the United States, you have to be a millionaire before you even start campaigning. You also have to be born in America, so if you were hoping, I'm sorry, probably for most of you it's too late. You, you can't do that. Our world wants leaders who are rich. Looks are also important. Why? Because, and I find this really interesting, the better looking you are, the more likely people are to think that you are trustworthy, intelligent, reliable and competent. Even though there is no correlation between looks and all those things. What's a leader like the nations? Well, it's someone who is tall and wealthy and good-looking. Well, as we meet Saul this morning, we discover that he perfectly fits the bill. Chapter 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bechorath, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. Surprise. He had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. He stood head and shoulders above everyone else. Saul is perfect king material. He's tall, he's handsome and wealthy. And actually, the two chapters, chapter 9 and chapter 10, this comes up at a couple of times. It's emphasized his height and his looks. Saul is tall, wealthy, and handsome. And the whole point is this. You want a king like the nations, I will give you what you want. And you know the, the hint was always in his name, Saul. Because the meaning of the name Saul in Hebrew is asked for. He's God's choice. But God is giving them exactly what they asked for. A king like the nations, a king who looks impressive. In a couple of months' time, uh, when we look at God choosing David, the criteria is actually completely different. In chapter 16, when Samuel's seeking the next king and sees one of David's brothers tall and handsome, God says... Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as the Lord sees. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We want a king like the nations. No, you don't. The whole of Saul's kingship is a great big no, you don't. The most important criteria for choosing a king is not what he looks like, but who he serves. Who is his heart set on? Uh, sometimes we ask for the wrong thing. 
Our hearts uh, are set on the impressive. We look for security in something, and so we ask for that thing. And often it's something that's good and shiny, but it's other than God. And sometimes God gives it to us so that in time we learn that these things actually ultimately can't give us what we want. Why does God give the people Saul? One of the answers is, on one level, you gave them a king like that of the nations because that's what they asked for. And they needed to learn that they needed to rely on him. But you know, that's not the ultimate reason. It's not even the reason that's given in 1 Samuel chapter 9. God tells Samuel why he gives them Saul. Chapter 9 verse 16. Tomorrow about this time I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be ruler over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen the suffering of my people because their outcry has come to me. God gives the people Saul, not actually because they asked for him, but because God is full of compassion and he's full of grace. He'd seen their suffering, he'd heard their cry, and Saul would indeed save the people from the Philistines. Even in God's lessons, he's full of grace and compassion. And he can see your sufferings as well. And he hears your cry as well. And even when you're given what perhaps you've prayed for and are learning new things about God, he's full of love and he's full of compassion. But you know, even this is not the ultimate reason. Chapter 10 ends with a question. And that was voiced by an, uh, what the narrator calls worthless men. It's a good question. Can this man save us? See, Israel wanted a king that would save them. And with each king that arose, you know, some were good, some were bad. And each time this question hung over them, can this man save us? Is this God's king? Is this the one who's going to bring in the world as it should be, security as it should be, life as it should be? Can this man save us? And with each king, it's almost as though the story uh, teases you with yes, yes, maybe, and then actually really no. It's not. This isn't the one. Throughout the book of 1 Samuel, the answer for every one of them is no. Saul is the first of the kings, but it's not until the last of the kings, one so utterly unlike the kings of the other nations, one who was not tall but was lifted up on the cross, one who is not particularly handsome and yet has a beauty that has captivated my heart and yours. One who became poor so that we might become rich in relationship with God. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who would be crowned even as he was crucified. Jesus. It's not until they got a king who wouldn't take but would give. Give even his life 
as a ransom for many, and that we would get the king. We would all get the king that we long for and we need, the king God really gives. Well, you know, God is at work in the details of your life to bring glory to that king. Uh, God is weaving you into his big story, a story that will see that king crowned with glory as we stand before him and hail him one day. He is at work giving us the leader we need uh, because it's God himself come in Christ to lead us home to him. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we thank you that you are a God who is compassionate and kind, a God who is at work ennobling our lives. Uh, we pray that we would be open to the work of your spirit, that we would rec recognize your hand in our lives, uh, that we would be uh, led by you to take our part in the large and glorious plan that you have for the salvation of this world. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would encourage us by just showing us, uh, perhaps even now, perhaps even this week, a little of the glory of what you're working through our own lives. And we pray, Lord, that as we see that action at work, we might come to uh, know you even more as Lord of our lives and sovereign over all. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would uh, lead us and bless us as we look towards that day when we see your Son crowned with glory. We stand before him as your church, uh, together with the saints down the ages and around this globe, and praise him as King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.